So often when people talk to me about Rando, they, they'll, they like, say, well, those poor people in Rando. And, you know, like, they were poor people because they had low-income jobs and they they didn't have a lot of education. And it it frustrates me because I don't think of Rondo as a as poor people. This is Kate Cavett. She's an oral historian. They might not have been all doctors and lawyers, and they might not have had huge houses like Summit Avenue, but they were such a rich community. Despite the fact that when they left their little neighborhood, they had to face racism every day. When they came back to their neighborhood, they held their heads high. Cavett spoke to more than 30 Rondo residents for an oral history project. We'll hear more from her soon. At the heart of any thriving neighborhood are people. And the people that came together to make up the Rondo neighborhood were the lifeblood which kept Rondo alive. To understand the people of Rondo, you first have to be aware of what brought them there and understand why Rondo was a destination for so many. I'm Brant Williams. And I'm Jonathan Rabb. And this is Untangled Roots. Like many northern cities, St. Paul was a draw for black people looking to flee the harsh economic and social conditions of the Deep South. Starting in the 1920s, the Great Migration brought people to places like Rondo and St. Paul, Chicago, and Detroit. St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter's own family followed this path to Rondo. Their journey started when his great-grandparents Mim Carter and Mary Whitfield Carter left Paris, Texas. Historian Kate Cavett detailed the reasons the Carters left Texas behind. And I understand that that um, Melvin Sr., uh, he was the first of his family born in St. Paul, but his parents, uh, or at least part of his family, came from Paris, Texas? Yes. What happened in Paris that, that caused the family to, to move to St. Paul? The Paris, Texas was burned down. The whole city was burned down, and when it was, then the other brothers came. They brought the other brothers to Mississippi, to Minnesota, because they were afraid for their lives. Right. And was this a, was it a riot? Was it one of the, I wouldn't call it a riot, it, because in, in history, you know, there are certain situations where black folks were run out of towns. Was that, was that the situation in Paris, where they were black people run out of Paris? According to Mr. Carter, they they were concerned that that was the case. Mr. Carter wa- wasn't sure that they, it was absolutely confirmed, but they weren't going to take any chance with their family. They thought that it was burned down to get the black people out of Paris. According to various historical maps and accounts from residents, the Rondo neighborhood was bordered by University Avenue to the north, Selby Avenue to the south, with Lexington and Rice Street making up the west and east boundaries. The neighborhood's main street was named for Joseph Rondo, R-O-N-D-E-A-U. He was an early settler who moved to the area in the 1850s. He came to the area after facing racial discrimination due to his wife's biracial, indigenous, and white heritage. Rondo purchased 40 acres of land in 1858 that was known as the Rondo Edition. 
He ultimately sold this land to real estate agents over the course of the following decade. Rondo transitioned from its early years as an immigrant neighborhood to a largely black enclave. The Rondo neighborhood was almost a neighborhood of immigrants. This is Evelyn Fairbanks. Fairbanks grew up in Rondo and wrote about her experience in the book The Days of Rondo. She spoke to NPR News in 1993. The black population come from the South. And so there were, there were those of us coming directly from the South and then the, the Russians, the Jewish people coming from Russia and, and the, you know, the Irish people coming actually from Ireland. So it was, it was a neighborhood of immigrants, really. When, you, when I stop and think about it, I didn't think about it at the time, though. Now, obviously, it's not easy to move yourself and your family to a new country. Author Isabel Wilkerson states in her book, The Warmth of Other Sons, Black Americans were refugees in their own country. Those who fled the South had hopes of escaping oppression by heading north. But many met discrimination in new ways in Minnesota. Once Black people made it to Rondo, their experience with racism didn't change. But that didn't stop the residents of Rondo from moving forward and building lives. I asked historian Kate Cavett about her understanding of the professional lives of the Rondo residents. What are some of the other types of work that was available for folks living in Rondo at that time? Um, At the packing plants in South St. Paul. But again, very, very hard work. So there were a lot of of the men on Rondo would work in the— in the butcher plant or the packing plants in in South St. Paul. And it but we have to remember too that when the men were off being waiters or at the packing plants, the women were also working. There were very few women that would stay home. Or if they there were people that lived on Rondo that had the shops on Rondo because it was a business street. So both husband and wife would work in the grocery store. Or work would work on the shop. There were also lawyers on Rondo. Now, you might have a degree, a law degree, but you might also be a waiter or a Pullman porter because most of the white folks were not going to come to a black lawyer. And the black community was not large enough to be able to support a lawyer. So there was a wide spectrum of black people living and working in Rondo, from factory workers and musicians to doctors and lawyers. But skills, training, and even degrees weren't enough to overcome the racism of the day. James Griffin, a Rondo native who went on to become the first black police sergeant in St. Paul, gave an interview to NPR where he talked about growing up in Rondo. Everybody talks about the railroads. This is a railroad town, most of that was the biggest employer for black males. And they were, there were two things. You could work for the railroad, you'd be a dining car waiter. You could work for the Pullman Company, you could be a sleeping car porter. A 1945 report commissioned by Minnesota Governor Ty called The Negro Worker in Minnesota also stated that the railroad employed hundreds of black people. The report said black people worked as dining car waiters, Pullman porters, red caps, car cleaners, and in a few miscellaneous jobs. The next largest employer were the packing plants in South St. Paul. Melvin Carter Sr., Mayor Carter's grandfather, spoke of his experience as a red cap in St. Paul. I was a red cab porter for about 12 years. We did the cleaning up in the building, 
janitor work, and we met the trains and uh, and uh, took the luggage from the people who wanted to help and uh, took it up to the front of the building, which was uh, quite a ways from where we picked them up on the, at the, at, uh, off the train. Our duties were to, uh, every, every porter had a duty to a uh, cleaning duty, plus the uh, meeting of the trains. We had to do our janitorial duties first and then uh, meet the trains after. Trains were coming in 24 hours a day and uh, pretty steadily. There was um, all blacks on this job because uh, that's the, just the way it was. As Melvin Carter Sr. mentioned, work on the railroads was difficult. And the people who had the office jobs and the, uh, and the bosses were all white, including the engineers and all the trainmen. We had professional men working as porters. And incidentally, we had lawyers and uh, musicians, which I was one, and I know a couple of under- undertakers. And they were all kind of students, guys going to the U and then going and working on the railroad at the same time. A lot of tradesmen like uh, electricians and, and plumbers and so forth. But uh, they couldn't get work outside of the black neighborhood, so it wasn't enough to support their, uh, give them a good living. So we had men studying to be doctors who were <laughs> relegated to being porters. By many accounts, Rondo neighbors worked hard to help improve lives for their families. Once again, Evelyn Fairbanks from her 1993 interview with NPR News. Everyone in, in Rondo, typical from the standpoint that the same value, the values ran throughout the neighborhood. Everybody had the same values. And so whatever you was wrong for your mother was also wrong for somebody living 10 blocks away. No, no matter what they did every day. So it was a family in that sense. They all thought they had all come here for a specific reason. That was to better their lives and so that their children would have a better life. And there was a certain way they had figured out to do that, education being one. Uh, Table manners, uh, speaking quietly, which I never did quite get down, (laughs) and not wearing red and just a whole lot of little things so that we could assimilate into the larger society. So one of the things that Kate was really adamant about when talking about Rondo and the people there, I remember her saying that she would get frustrated when she would tell people about Rondo and the people that she she spoke to, that people would somehow think that these were somehow poor people. I mean, it's it's like if you have your uh, sense of community, you are uh, hardworking and your children are educated your family is fed, you have church and family and friends that you can surround yourself with. These were not poor people. They were very rich in that way, culturally rich, community rich. Maybe not everybody was could afford big houses and, and, and living in big fancy neighborhoods, but this was, in many ways for them, uh, a, a rich area. It was a rich surrounding for them to be in because they had those connections. Yeah, so there's like a stereotype that all black communities are slums, right? Rondo was not a slum. No. It was a place where people had, um, yeah, people were working middle class, or at the time, like the best jobs that you could get as black people. Right. And they were sending their kids to school, um, great education. They, I, yeah, they were, they, were, they were moving their way up. 
Now, we're not trying to tell you that Rondo was perfect. It was a working, functioning community that meant something to the people that lived there. It was a haven for Black people, where Black Minnesota families like the Carters, the Fairbanks, and the Griffins chose to come and build a future. They cared for each other. They raised their children to be the next leaders in St. Paul. They were resilient. They were proud. They worked hard in some of the hardest jobs, but still they were intelligent, hardworking, proud people. That's not poor. That's rich. Rich doing the best that you can with hard circumstances is still rich. Thank you so much for listening. Untangled Roots is a production of NPR News and part of our North Star Journey Project. Untangled Roots would not have been possible without the work of many people, including executive producer Sarah Glover, producers Twyla Dang and Brent Williams, hosts Brent Williams and Jonathan Rabb, sound design and mixing Alex Simpson, researcher Ann Harrington, with original music by Greg Grease. You can learn more about Untangled Roots, the North Star Journey Project, and find additional resources by going to the NPR News website at nprnews.org. Untangled Roots was made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.